Amen. Good morning, Mars. Thank you. We're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21 this morning. We are coming to the third significant text, huge text on love. The third time John emphasizes this topic and covers this topic in just 105 verses. And you might be thinking, why on earth do we need to hear about this yet again? Just in these 14 verses we're going to look at this morning, John says 27 times, 27 times he says the word love. And this is, again, the third significant text in this letter on love. Why do we need to hear this again? Come on, John. How many times do we have to hear this? Why are we focusing on this yet again? And he would respond, likely, well, how many times do you have to tell your children to do something? Those of you with little children know you have to tell them and keep telling them and keep telling them and keep telling them. The more I study this book, you know, I've said, he says beloved, he says little children. These are terms of endearment. These are also terms to catch our attention. He says it again in verse 7. I'll say it again later in the text. But I think also he is addressing us as little children. We are little children to our Heavenly Father. And we need these words over and over and over and over again. We need these reminders. These things must be true of you. And these, these things must be worked out in your life. Love must be present in your midst. We might be tempted to say, come on, okay, John, I, I, I get it. I, I, you know, I get this text. And I think he would respond, but do you? We might be tempted to say, I get it. We're supposed to love. But I think he would say, if he could, turn on the TV. Do you? Really? I think he'd say more importantly, because I think he's addressing believers here, he'd say, turn on the footage of your church. Turn on the footage of your home. Turn on the footage of your own life. Do you? Do you get it? Are you living this text? Are you loving as God has loved you in Christ Jesus? Is this true of you? He's writing to believers. He's writing to, uh, to churches. And he's calling us to love. He's writing to churches that are deeply wounded. Deeply divided. There have been many that have walked away from the faith. Many from within the midst of those churches who've walked away and they've begun to teach false teachings about Jesus, denied the faith, denied Jesus. And the church that he's writing to, the churches he's writing to are deeply wounded and deeply divided and deeply confused. And John writes to them, love. Three significant passages, 27 times just in this text, what is John trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us to not let our wounds be the determiner of love, but let Jesus's wounds on our behalf be the determiner of love. Don't let your wounds be the determiner in the definition of love. Look to Jesus and look to his wounds on your behalf. Let that be the definition of love and love in the same way. That's what John is writing about and to these churches. The fact that he gives three significant passages and emphasizes love so many times in this text tells us the importance of this subject, but it also tells us the difficulty of this subject, even as followers of Christ. It is so unnatural for us to love in the way that John is calling us to, in the way that the gospel calls us to. It's so unnatural that even redeemed, even though we are in Christ, we still struggle and go back to our definitions of love and loving them in the way that we want to love and loving the people that we want to love and loving them in the when we want to love them. And John's calling us back. No, 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 no. Look, look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Never take your eyes off of him. Love as he has loved you. Love as God has loved you in Christ. 
So as we look at this text this morning, we're going to see first the command to love. And then we're going to see the pinnacle text, maybe in, the, in a whole letter, we're going to see the, 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 the demonstration of love in verse 9 and 10, the display and demonstration of God's love for us. Then we're going to see, in response to that, our obligation and motive to love, and then the evidence of love. John is constantly trying to look to evidence and give us assurance of salvation, so look to the evidence That's what he's also going to say. And then finally, the results of love. So the command, the demonstration, the obligation, the evidence, and the results. I promise I'll only spend 30 minutes on each of these points. (laughs) The first is the command to love. The command to love. He says, beloved. Again, listen, listen, listen. Captures our attention. Look, look, listen in. Look at what I'm trying to see. I'm trying to say here. Listen to what I'm teaching you. And he says, let us love one another. That phrase is another of the many continuous present active phrases that John uses. Present active continuous meaning love and keep on loving. Not singular, not in one instance, but persistently, consistently love and keep on loving. Let this be the regular pattern and habit of your life. This must be the regular pattern and habit of your life. It's not a one-time occurrence. It's an ongoing reality that must be true in your life. Don't simply love now. Don't simply love only those you deem as lovable. Don't simply love when you want to love, but love and always love. This is the mark of a Christian. Love Always. Let us love one another. Why? For two reasons he gives here in the first two verses. First, because that's who God is. That's what he does. That's his nature. That's his DNA. That's his character. He says, for love is from God. Verse 8 and verse 16, he's going to simply say, God is love. This is his DNA. This is his nature. This is who he is, everything he does in all of his attributes are loving, is loving. When he judges, he judges lovingly. When he is holy, he is a holy and loving God. Everything that he is, is loving. Every determination, every decision, every moment, every movement, every activity, everything that he is, is love. That's who God is. Verse 8, verse 16, God is love. Love is from God. Which leads us to the second reason that John ties to why we must love, why we must love and keep on loving. If that's who he is, if that's his DNA and his nature and his character, and we are in him, then that's our DNA, character, and nature too. Remember back in chapter 1, we said that John says, God is light, and anyone who is in him will resemble light. The same principle is true here. What he's arguing is God is love, and anyone who is in him will love. This This must be true of anyone who has encountered the love of God. This is telling us something important. If we love at all, it's because first and foremost, we are created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1. And if we are creating the image of God, we also love. But we all know that Genesis chapter 3 happened and and we rebelled and, and we are now in sin. We are born in sin. And so our love, while sometimes might be altruistic and might be others focused, more times than not, more often than not, it's intertwined and laced with selfish, sinful motives. More times than not, we see others as the obstacle to what we want or the means to what we want. I'm going to use you to get what I want or you're in the way of what I want. And so our love is often intertwined and laced with sinful, self-centered, selfish motives because of sin. What John is arguing over and over again in this letter and in this text and in these just these few verses is if anyone has truly encountered the the love of God, the God who is love, then their love will be transformed from sinful and self-centered to righteous and outward others focused as God is. It will look like the love of God. It will be supernaturally motivated and transformed. It will not look like the love of this world. 
that will see others as an obstacle or others as the means to love. He's not talking about love as we define it. He's talking about love as God defines it. Okay? Leads to a question and our second point. God is love. I'm in him. And I'm supposed to love as he loved. How did he love? What is his love? How did he display his love? How did he demonstrate his love? What does his love look like? If I'm in him and I'm supposed to love as he loved, then how did he love? How did he love me? How, did he, how does he love us? And that's where John goes in verse 9 and verse 10. We've been in the, what one commentator calls the outer rooms, the lobby, and now we are walking into the grand cathedral of this text, the grand cathedral of God's love. Verse 9 and verse 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Manifest means revealed. It was made known. It was demonstrated. It was displayed. It was present among us. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. His love was revealed. That's what John is saying. It has been revealed. It has been made known. It, it can be seen. It can be known. It can be observed. How? He says, in that God sent his only son into the world. That word only is significant. It, it's a Greek word that means one and only. It's emphasizing the uniqueness of who Jesus is, the distinction of who Jesus is, and the immensity and the and the and the just extraordinary, unique value of the Son, and therefore the immensity of God's love. He gave up His only Son. Only. The one and only Son of God. God offered up for you and I. And why? He says, God sent His only Son into the world, the one and only Son, so that we might live through him. Verse 9 is, is an extraordinary shorthand for the gospel. When I say shorthand, I mean it, it, it says an immense amount, but it's missing something. It's not complete. It doesn't make full sense. He sent him into the world, comma, so that we might live through him. It, it tells us that we might live through him means that we are dead, that we are separated from God. There's something missing in our life. We are not right. And he sent Jesus into the world, comma. It doesn't tell us what Jesus did in order to make us alive, those of us who are dead, alive. It doesn't tell us what Jesus did in verse 9, what, what, what happens so that we might live through him, so that we might be right with God. So nine is extraordinary shorthand, and what John is doing is drawing us in. He's setting up the punchline of verse 10, and that's when he comes to verse 10. When we get to verse 10, we see that everything in verse 9 is building anticipation for verse 10. What's seemingly incomplete in verse 9 is expounded in verse 10, and it blows the mind. In this is love. Again, love is demonstrated. Love is displayed. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son. Second time. It's going to happen three times in the text. Sent, sent, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How did God love us? And therefore, how does he call us to love? First, he shows us that his love, it, it, everything, John says, it, it's, is initiated by God, not by us. It is first about his love, not about our love. Everything in the text is emphasizing that God loves us. He takes the initiative. Long before we could ever possibly love him, he worked, set out, sent the Son to love us. This is Romans 5, 8 all over again. While we are sinners, while we were yet sinners rebelling against God while we, Ephesians 2, were dead in our sins. God sent Jesus. God sent his son. The initiative starts with him and, and is all his. And then he goes on and he shows us this, this extraordinary, extravagant, 
unbelievable love, he sent his one and only son. There it is again. He says it in 9. He sent his one and only son. In, in 1 John 4.10, it says God sent his son. In, in Romans 3.25, it says he put him forward. In Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 9, we learn that Jesus is offered up and Jesus offers himself up. All of these verses are telling us that God put his son forward, offered him up to do what? Well, in verse 9, Jesus came so that we might live, so that we who are dead might live. In verse 10, what we learn is Jesus came to die so that we might live. How does he say that? He says it in the phrase, John says, he sent his one and only son to be the propitiation for our sins. You might have a translation that says to be the atonement price for our sins. Helosmos is the Greek word, and it is incredibly rich. It is so thick and rich and dripping with the love of God. It's so beautiful. What does it mean? Our sins, the scriptures tell us, are against a holy God and against God alone. And God has, is, his wrath is being poured out, is directed towards, is set against sin. And from our perspective, there seems to be only two options. Either God is going to pour out his wrath, as we read the scriptures, he's going to pour out his wrath, he's going to pour out his justice, and he's going to ignore grace. Or he's going to be incredibly gracious and, and ignore and pervert justice. We cannot, from our perspective, see any other way. But the Bible, and this is the gospel, says no. In Jesus, justice and grace meet and are satisfied perfectly. In Jesus, what does propitiation mean? It means God satisfies his own wrath by putting forward his own payment in his own son for you and for me. That's what propitiation means. He is our payment and our substitute. It's incredible what this word means and what it teaches us. It means that justice and grace meet in Jesus. Holiness and hope meet in Jesus. He doesn't pervert justice, ignore justice. He doesn't prefer, per pervert grace, ignore grace. No, his justice and his grace. He graciously pours out his justice on himself in Jesus for you and I. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why he sent the Son. This is how much he loves you. He so loves you, John 3.16. That he sent his one and only Son to die for you. To be your payment and your substitute. He takes his own wrath for us in his only Son. I've shared this quote with you before. John Stott, I think, summarizes this in just magnificently. He says, The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The, con the, the concept of substitution may be said, then, to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of, of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. He's our substitute that satisfies the wrath of God, averts the wrath of God. This week, this past week, my family, our family got to experience a visible, tangible display of this in the most unlikely way. This week, we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and our two-year-old is, is in her terrorist two-phase, and she, she earned herself a timeout. And there, my wife is 
this sitting down with her to try to talk with her and reason with her, which just doesn't work. <laughs> and, and there in that moment, as she's kneeling down to talk to my, our two-year-old, our four-year-old walks in the room and says, Mommy, I'll do her time out for her. You're shocked just as much as I am. And my wife was shocked just as much as you are. And she looked at her, and she's wide-eyed, and she's trying to contemplate the right parent decision in this moment. Do I let this happen? Do I not? What happens here? What is going on? Who are you? And she said, okay. And she's telling me this story at dinner, and we're sitting around the table, and, and I'm almost in tears. I'm amazed that I have this little theologian in our house. And I ask, Addie Wynn, Addie Wynn, where did you learn that? Where did that, where did that come from? What motivated you to do that? And she said, it's in the book. Now I think she's memorized the Bible, and I don't even know what's going on here. It's in the book? What book are you talking about? Are you talking about the Bible? And she, no, she runs over and she picks up the Advent book that we produced here and we read to our families and children this past Christmas. And immediately I remembered in there, there is a, a reflection on 1 John 4.10. And I don't know if you're like this, but it's like pulling teeth to get our kids to focus and even read a verse. And so we're trying to get them to act it out, to stay engaged. Let's act out these verses. And we get to this word, propitiation. How do you act out propitiation? How do I explain to a four and a two-year-old propitiation? And I said, I remember saying this to them. It, it's like if, to Addie Wynn, it's like if you got in trouble and you're in timeout, if Eleanor came in and said, I'll do your timeout for you, how would you feel in that moment? And she, of course, was like, I don't know. And three months later, here she is, and she's doing this on behalf of her sister. Now listen, she's four years old, and her teacher is inadequate and didn't teach her the full story. That's only one half of propitiation. She was willing to do her time to pay her debt, but she didn't remove Eleanor's guilt. And she didn't also say, Daddy, Mommy, Eleanor can have all of my inheritance. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus not only satisfies the, the wrath of God, pays our debt on our behalf, turning, averting the wrath of God, so now we get nothing but His favor, but He also gives us His inheritance, gives us his right standing with the Father gives us His freedom, gives us His life, gives us His righteousness, gives us His peace before God. This is extraordinary. This is the gospel. John, this is the pinnacle moment. This is what love is. You want to know what love is? This is love. What kind of love did God pour out on us? What kind of love are we called to give well, what kind of love did God give in Jesus? It was costly. It was sacrificial. It's extraordinary. This is the kind of love that God poured out. It's lavish and gracious and extravagant. And why did He pour it out? For our good. For our betterment. For our cleansing. So that we might be made whole, we who are incomplete. So that we who might be, might, might be made alive who are dead. So that you and I might have life and freedom and real joy. This is how, what it means to so that we might live through Him. Real life, real meaning, real purpose, real identity, real hope, real joy, real freedom, real life. This is what we're offered in Jesus. This is the kind of love that God poured out, and this is the kind of love that John is calling us to pour out on others. And that leads us to our third point. 
John's not simply trying to give us a theology lesson, though there is rich theology here. He's not tr- simply trying to get, a, get information in our heads, though that's in, it's necessary for us to do it. He's trying to move the information down to the heart. He's trying to get us to look at a four-year-old being willing to do time out for a two-year-old. All of you felt a little bit of heart tug when you heard that. How much more when the Savior and King of the world is willing to pay your penalty and give you His life? That's what John's doing. John's calling us to stare. Look at the cross. Never take your eyes off of the cross. Look at Jesus. Stare at His love. Stare at the costly love of God in Jesus Christ. Be melted and moved. Let it move from your head down to your heart and out into your hands. And that's what he says in verse 11 and why he gets to the obligation of love. Beloved, if... Or since God so loves us, loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ought to. It's a a Greek word that means obligation or responsibility. We have a responsibility now to respond to such extraordinary love. We have an obligation to respond. We 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 don't love others to get God's love. What John's telling us is that we get God's love. He loved us before we loved him. We get God's love, and in light of that extraordinary, magnificent love, love. Love out of an overflow of that love. You have a responsibility to stare at it and respond to it. This is what John is calling his audience to and us. He doesn't just want us to know it. He wants us to be melted by it, moved by it, living it, and doing it. Don't let your wounds be the determiner of love. Let Jesus' wounds be the determiner of love. Stare at his love and keep staring at it. Don't love to get his love. Look at the love you've received, you're offered in Jesus, by God in Jesus, and love in response. That's his DNA. That's his nature. That's his character. It's costly. It's sacrificial. And if you are in him, You now must love in the same way. Love your brothers and sisters. Love even your enemies. Love because this is what God has done on your behalf. Now as an aside, this is just a a side note. It needs to be said because sometimes we read these verses, we read these texts, and some of you are in circumstances and contexts, either professionally or personally. You're in a context where you think, I'm supposed to love my enemies. I'm supposed to love costly and sacrificially. We're 100% called to, to love our brothers and sisters. We're 100% called to love our enemies. But loving them doesn't mean we are obligated To suffer abuse at their hands. It doesn't mean that we must go on suffering abuse. Loving them might be the the most loving thing that we might do in that situation is to love them from a distance. And to love supernaturally like this might be for us to pray for them and their repentance and God's mercy and grace on that person's life. Many of you remember back just a few years ago, Rachel Denhollander and Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was a Michigan State physician and the USA Gymnastics physician, and he abused over 150 young girls. Rachel Denhollander was the first to speak out. She was the first to speak up and to, to issue charges, accusations against him. And she was the last one to issue her statement in the court. She was the last one to give her impact statement, and she said this, I pray to him, face to face, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. So that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Which you need far more than you need forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. That's otherworldly 
supernatural, gospel-centered love. She didn't go on continuing to receive abuse. She stood up against it, and she prayed for his rescue and redemption from a distance. So there's a lot of different contexts, and there's a lot of different ways that we can apply this method, action, display, demonstration. Regardless, it is supernatural. And we're called, if we are in Christ, in God, to love as he loved. And that leads to what John is, is also concerned about, and that's assurance. And our fourth point, the evidence of love. And he gives several points from 12 down to 16 related to evidence. Related to the evidence of, of this kind of supernatural love invading Rachel Denhollander is giving the evidence of this kind of love. She says she's a follower of Christ. She displayed the, the love of Christ in that moment. And John is concerned that we understand and we have the assurance that we know that there, this, this kind of claim must, it will, and it must work itself out. It must be be displayed. In other words, we talked last week about making a confession that Jesus is, is King, is Savior, is, is Lord. And that confession, John, is concerned that we understand is not just verbal, it's also visible. In other words, and, and we said it's not just a visible, I say it, you see me say it. It's visible in action. Jesus is King. Well, do you salute him when he walks in the room? Jesus is Lord. Well, do you obey him when he commands? Jesus is love. Well, do you love as he loves? And that's what John gets to and goes to in verses 12 to 16. He gives evidence. The first is loving others like our God and Savior gives evidence that his love has taken root. That evidence is both to us, for us, and also to the world. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's the evidence to us. And his love is perfected in us. That's the evidence to the world. What's he saying here? No one has ever seen God. In light of that, John argues, if we see consistent, persistent, perpetual, supernatural, otherworldly love, examples and glimmers and glimpses of it, and it's the regular pattern of a person's life, particularly ours. This is first about us before we look at others. If this is true and consistent around, then we have evidence that God abides in us. How do you know that those fields outside around this church are sunflower fields? You don't. Unless sunflowers pop up. Unless they begin to fill the field. It's not a sunflower field. Don't go looking. How do you know that the Spirit is at work in your life and in the life of someone else? You don't. Except by the winds of the Spirit rustling the leaves of the Spirit. Except by the fruit. Except by the evidence. Except by the outward evidence. And that's what John is saying. No one has ever seen God. Except for the one and only, he argues in John chapter 1. The Gospel of John. If we love one another, as John has defined it, costly, sacrificial, graciously, extraordinarily, as God has loved us, and it's incremental and persistent, and, and it's the pattern of a trajectory of a person's life, of our lives, then we can take heart. The, the, the gospel has taken root. It's on the move in our lives. It's on the move in our hearts and our, and our bodies. It's changing us. We're, we're beginning to look and look and sound like Jesus. So he's giving us evidence for us, but he's also saying this kind of love is also a display to the world. It's an apologetic. Francis Schaeffer famously made that point that the, the mark of a Christian from John 13, 35 is that we love one another. And if we love one another, then this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. John 13, 35. Schaeffer says, therefore, loving our love for one another, our one anothering together, our my procrastination in judging you, my procrastination in, in assuming the worst about you, but instead going the extra mile, bearing one another's burdens, loving you, doing these one another's together, all of that is giving evidence 
to the outside world that something is extraordinary, remarkably different about that person, those people. When we don't rush to, to judgment, don't rush to court, 1 Corinthians 6. Instead, we, we show patience and restraint and try to seek reconciliation and forgive one another. That's so contrary to the world. It's like a signal flare to the world. Something's different. This is why John's saying, turn on the footage of your church. Is this true? Turn on the footage of your family. Turn on the footage of your life. Is this true of you? If it is in incremental doses and trajectory of your life, then take heart. The gospel has taken root. Your life looks like a sunflower field. It will one day. And then he says this word perfected. If we're living this way and displaying this way, his love is perfected in us. And this is, again, that point that he's, he's making that it's not only for evidence for us, it's also for the world. Perfected is an extraordinary word. It means it's, it's accomplishing the end for which it was sent. The, the love of God in Jesus, the, the last thing Jesus said on the cross is it is finished. It's the same Greek word that John uses here. It is perfect. It is accomplished. It's completed. What? The work to which you sent me. To die, at the, to live the life that you called me to live, to, to die the death that, that they could not die, to die the death in place. It is finished. It's completed. It's accomplished. John is telling us here, no one has, has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's a, God abides in us and his love is accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. What's the purpose? Jesus came and died to, to reorient, to transform, to, to, to change your heart and your life and my heart and my life. And if we're loving as Jesus loved, then we are accomplishing the very thing that Jesus came to do to change the world, to make all things new. We're giving evidence that the gospel really is true. It really is that powerful. It really is the hope of the world. There is so much weight in this one verse. So much importance in this one verse. It, it, it should cause us to step back and say, wait a second, that is a lot of responsibility. Yes. And it should cause us to investigate and evaluate, are we doing it? Are we striving for love? Are we, are we doing the hard, long, arduous work of resolving conflict and tension in our families and in our family. Are we doing that? This is a call. This is evidence. It's also a call. Is this true in your life in ever increasing de degrees? Is this true in our church, in our family? Does our family resemble this kind of love? The other piece of evidence he gives in verse 13, loving others like our God and Savior gives evidence that the Spirit is at work within us. We, we talked about this last week. We, we don't have to belabor this point. He, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us the Spirit. One of the chief roles of the Holy Spirit is to spotlight Jesus. If, if your life and your love and your words and your actions are spotlighting Jesus, then you're giving evidence that you have seen the one the Spirit spotlights. You're giving evidence that you have, you have acknowledged, you've seen the, 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 the one the Spirit points to, and, and you have confessed the one the Spirit points to, if this is how you love. Do you find yourself pointing more and more to the, to the love of Christ as your only hope and the only hope of the world? Do you find yourself doing what the Spirit does, which is lifting and hoisting the flag of Jesus? Do you find that happening more and more in your life, in your words, in your actions, in, in the way, in the attitudes, dispositions you show to one another and, and your families and to this family? Is that more and more incrementally true of your heart and your life? Then you're giving evidence that the Spirit is at work in your heart and your life. The third piece of evidence, verses 14 to 16 Loving others like our God and Savior gives evidence that we are Christians. It's beautiful. There's so, again, 
so much. There's this deep Trinitarian theology. It starts in verse 12 with the Spirit. Then he gets down to verse 13, rather, than the Spirit. Verse 14, the Father. Verse 15 and 16, the Son, the Spirit, the Father, the Son. If we love in this way, we're acknowledging what the Spirit has opened our eyes to, that God sent the Son, the Father sent the Son, and the Son is our only substitute, our only hope. We're giving acknowledgement. We're confessing that that is true. And it's changed my heart and my life when we love this way. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. If we love this way, we give evidence that we've heard the message of the gospel, that we've confessed that Jesus is our only hope, and that we are seeking with all of our being to align ourselves to his leadership in our lives. In short, loving one another is the mark of a Christian. By this, they will know that you are my disciples. That leads us to the last point, the results of love. This is really verse 17 all the way down to, to verse 21. And the first result of love, benefit, if you will, blessing, if you will, is confidence. This is, this is remarkable. 1 John four seventeen. By this is love perfected. There it is again. It's, it's brought to completion, fulfillment. By, by this, love is accomplishing has accomplished its, its purpose, what I sent Jesus for. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. His love gives confidence. It gives confidence. It gives assurance. This is one of John's chief purposes in writing. This is one of the purposes in, in Jesus, the God sending the Son to come and die for us. If we have confidence that we can stand before God on the day of judgment, then we are giving, a sh- we are giving confession, we're giving a statement that we have received His love, that we are hoping in His love in Jesus. If we have confidence that we can stand before God on the day of judgment, the love of God in Jesus has accomplished its perfect purpose. Growing in God's love for us means growing less and less worried if we have done enough and more and more confident in the one God says is enough. Growing in the understanding that God absolutely loves you, look at the cross. How much does He love you? Look at the cross. He loves you infinitely, extraordinarily, growing in that confidence and that assurance Uh, That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That he really does love me. There's nothing I can do to earn it. And there's nothing I will ever do to cost it. He loves me that much, that amazingly. Growing incrementally ever more day in and day out in our assurance and confidence in that love means we're growing less and less confident that I could do anything and more and more confident in what he presented, the offering he presented, Jesus. In Luke 18, there's a parable that Jesus tells about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Do you remember that? The Pharisee goes in and he says, I, 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 I. He's talking about all that he's done, all that he's given, all that he's fasted, all that he accomplished. And look, thank God I'm just the best person ever. Thank God I'm not like that person over there. And then there's the tax collector. He stands far off. He he beats his chest and he prays, God have mercy on me. It's the same word as propitiation, halasmos. God, make atonement for me. More importantly, what he's saying is, God, may that atonement price that you're offering be enough. May that be my sufficient salvation. So one is presenting his own offerings. The other is is hoping in the offering that God has presented. And one is radically insecure, though he boasts in himself. 
and the other is radically insecure, but Jesus says, walks away justified, that man will grow in confidence. Is that true of you? Can you stand before God and have the same confidence that Jesus has right before God the Father? There will be a day we will all stand before a holy God. The righteous judged unto righteousness according to Jesus. And we will be able to say, can you say on that day, boldly and with assurance, Daddy. If that's too unsophisticated for you, go back and read Galatians chapter 4. Because that's what the Spirit is crying out day and night in those who are redeemed. Abba, Father, Daddy. Can you stand before a holy, infinite God with that kind of assurance and that kind of confidence? Walking into his presence just like Jesus does. Growing in his love will lead us to grow in that assurance. Well, how do I do that? Day in and day out reading about his love. Day in and day out in community together holding up his love to one another. Day in and day out, lifting one another's eyes to Jesus. Day in and day out, doing what the Holy Spirit does. And it leads us to assurance. There's a byproduct of the assurance. That byproduct is now I, if I'm growing in God's love, if I'm growing in confidence of His love, that He loves me, then what, what is it? Your love doesn't matter anymore. Your approval and your disapproval is like water off a duck's back now. I'm less and less elated when you approve. I'm less and less crushed when you disapprove. Why? Because I have the only love that matters. The love of God in Jesus Christ. The more I grow in my assurance that He loves me this way, the more I'm free from your approval or your disapproval. And you know what that does? It frees me to love you without conditions. To love you as God loves you. To not see you as an object in my way or a means to what I want, but to love you unconditionally. In other words, his love is perfected in me. And this will be ever more true incrementally in our lives. The last result is simply that we will love. If we meditate, if we see the imperative, John brings us all the way back to the imperative. It starts with the command, it ends with the command. But the command is, is contingent. It's, it, it's, if this is a, a seesaw, verse 10 and 11 are the, are the middle. That Look to the love of God, and if, if he loves you in such a way, then love that way. Respond. Stare. Be moved. Be melted by the love of God on your behalf, and then go love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. That's taking us all the way back to, to 10 and 11. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why? Because God is love. And those who are in him will resemble him. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. We, we have not seen God. Many commentators point out, John Stott points out, others point out, it's, it's difficult to love the unseen God. It's far easier to try and love the person that we see. If we cannot love the person we see, particularly those who are redeemed in Christ, then there's a disconnect. John says, we may be liars. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I, John is saying here, I know you've been wounded. I know that you're a divided church. I know that you've had brothers and sisters and family members betray you and walk out. That doesn't change the fact that God is love. That doesn't change your obligation to love. Your wounds are not the determination of love. Jesus' wounds are if God is love, then love. If God so loved, then love. If God is in you, then love. If you are in God, then love. These are the things that John has said. Look to Jesus' wounds. Look to his scars. Look to his sacrifice. Look to his body broken for you and his blood shed for you.
Let that radically melt and move you to then do the same thing. This is why we come to the table. This is why we remember. We're told in the scriptures that as often as we do this to remember, to remember what? His body broken for us and his blood shed for us. To remember his wounds, to remember his sacrifice, to remember his payment of our debt, to remember the life he lived that we could not live, the death he died that we owed. To remember that God put forward his own payment in his own son to satisfy his own wrath. The scriptures tell us to not take this in a manner unworthy. To, to, to A, that, that means to not take this if you haven't taken Jesus. Take him in. Hope in him. Don't hope in this. The bread and the wine. Also, that means that if there is an issue between you and another brother or sister, you and your spouse... To confess that sin, to, to, to not take this in a manner where flippantly, without thought, without care, without inspecting your heart. Because what you're doing in this is, is confessing that, that his blood counts for me. His, his, his body broken for me counts for me. This imagery, symbolism, may your atonement count for me. May your atonement price be my hope. And if it is, that I'm supposed to love in the same way. What we're going to do here in just a second, we have three tables. We have one on each side. These have juice and bread, both on the sides. This has juice and bread. It also has a common cup with, with wine. And we invite you to come and take as your conscience allows. I want to encourage you to consider, inspect your heart if there be an issue between you and someone else, to confess, to seek reconciliation, to seek peace, to love as Christ has loved you. If you have not received Jesus, then receive him before you ever consider receiving this bread and this juice. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to the table remembering your wounds on our behalf, remembering your body broken for us. May we feel, may every person in this room feel the soul-crushing weight of the guilt of our sins. 